Welcome to Confronting the Madness. My name is Mark Corthius, and I'm the host of Confronting the Madness. My guest today is Dr. David M. Clark. Dr. Clark is a professor of psychology at the University of Oxford and is also a national clinical advisor for the United Kingdom's Department of Health. Dr. Clark's research has led to the development of new and effective cognitive therapy programs for panic disorder, social phobia, and post-traumatic stress disorders. Alongside economist Richard Layard, Dr. Clark wrote the book Thrive, How Better Mental Health Care Transforms Lives and Saves Money. Dr. Clark was instrumental in pioneering the development and implementation of the Improving Access to Psychological Therapies Program, IAPT, in 2008. The IAPT program has grown each year since 2008 and now sees over 1 million people annually. Dr. Clark has won numerous awards in the United Kingdom and the USA. Such recognition includes Lifetime Achievement Awards from the British Psychological Society and the American Psychological Association. Dr. Clark and I had a great conversation about improving access to psychological therapies, not only in England, but around the world. And I hope you enjoy our conversation. And now I bring to you Dr. David M. Clark. for joining me on uh, Confronting the Madness, episode 15. Um, it's a great honor to have you uh, on to talk about a number of things uh, psychotherapy related. Well, it's a great pleasure to be joining you, Mark. Uh, just for, for those audience members that don't know, I just want to run through a quick uh, bio of, of you and the work that you've done over a number of years and, and now decades. Um, so you're currently the professor of psychology at Oxford uh, and a national clinical advisor at the Department of Health for, would that be NHS? That's right, the NHS. Um, and you've done research that has led to the development of new and effective cognitive therapy programs for things like panic disorder, social phobia, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, well, I came across you um, because I was, I was very much interested in the, the economics of mental health. And um, you and your colleague, Richard Layard, had written a book um, called Thrive, How Better Mental Health Care Transform Lives and Saves Money. You also have a, a separate subheading as well uh, called Thrive, The Power of Psychological Therapy. And so um, the book is very much a primer on why um, therapy is beneficial both from a psychological perspective but also then um, marries the economic argument for policymakers as to why um, it's an investment rather than a cost and so um, very 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 um, good read for those interested in, in that type of argument and, and so that's led to a number of 
of work and initiatives um, where, where you reside in England. Um, but I'd also just like to mention, mention um, the program that you started, Improving Access to Psychological Therapy, has grown each year since 2008 and now sees over 1 million people each year, which is just astronomical. Um, and you've also been the recipient of a number of awards, both in the United Kingdom, United States, Lifetime Achievement Awards from the British Psychological Society and the American Psychological Association. So um, in many ways, you're one of the preeminent um, thinkers um, with respect to psychotherapy. So. Uh, that's that's a long bio, but uh, I think it's deserved. It. So, um, you know, you've been leading the charge, I think, in England and internationally with respect to making a case for publicly funded psychotherapy. And um, before we go into um, the economics and just maybe talk a little bit about how therapy works, what we know about therapy now from a a research perspective. And maybe talk a little bit about the, the most effective therapies, things like CBT, EMDR, and even, even DBT, um, if you don't mind. Sure. Well, I mean, the first thing to say is that there are psychological therapies that work, but it's not all psychological therapies. So uh, the, the critical thing for the public is to know whether the psychological therapies they're interested in uh, pursuing our wants that have a good evidence base. And that inevitably means that they need to have been supported in some randomized clinical trial. And the sort of basic requirement is uh, a few trials which have uh, compared the outcomes people get with those people who haven't got any treatment. Often that's people on a waiting list. And um, actually there have been some surprises in trials like that. So there have been treatments that were really commonly used and quite a lot of people got better while having them but when they were subjected to a, a proper clinical trial compared against no treatment it turned out they were harmful and the classic example of that is psychological debriefing that was a technique that was often used after people have been uh, through a traumatic event uh, a terrorist incident uh, a bank robbery that sort of thing and there would often be a sort of army of psychologists who would come in within the first 24 hours or so and get people to talk through what had happened in great detail. And uh, it's certainly the case that, you know, if you uh, checked in on people maybe two or three months later, they would say, well, they were much less troubled by the event than they were 24 hours afterwards. Um, and they were very grateful for the help. Mm -hmm. But when uh, a team here in Oxford did a randomized control trial, so people either got that sort of intervention or no intervention 24 hours after the trauma, and then followed people up for three years, they found that the people who got debriefing had recovered more slowly than the people who didn't get debriefing. Hmm. Interesting. So this is an example where a treatment that people were pleased to have got turns out to have slowed down the, the body's natural mental healing process. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it is really important that, you know, things are tested against certainly are they better than nothing. But it, in addition to that, we'd like to compare them against some other therapies because there are some sort of key ingredients of 
therapies that you know any good therapy should have uh, seeing a therapist that you can trust mm -hmm. seeing someone who really is interested in your problems and listens to you in a non-judgmental supportive fashion um, and you know that's something that should be present in any therapy that you have mm -hmm. but obviously one would hope that in addition to the benefits of that and there definitely are benefits to that um, that the therapy would have something else in which would take you a bit further still and so most of the therapies that one uh, recommends now are ones that have been shown to be better than no treatment but also better than just sort of supportive listening right um, i see that one doesn't want to minimize the value of that but you want something that does even better than that alone right um and um there are quite a few therapies that are like that and it depends a bit on what clinical condition you're looking at mm -hmm. so if we're looking at depression there are actually quite a lot of therapies that are helpful uh, cognitive behavior therapy is one but so is a certain types of counseling um, couples therapy if you're depressed in the context of a, um, a stressful couples relationship and your partner is still willing to join with you in the therapy sessions mm -hmm. um, also something called interpersonal psychotherapy and also brief psychodynamic psychotherapy and in the UK we have a body called NICE the National Institute for Care and Clinical Excellence which is independent of any particular professional group, you know, psychiatrists, psychologists, or whatever, and is just um, mandated by the government to look impartially at the evidence for the effectiveness of interventions across the whole of medicine, mm -hmm. and then to make recommendations. And NICE recommends all of those therapies in depression, based on the evidence. Mm -hmm. For anxiety disorders, the um, recommendations are more restrictive, uh, and basically, the therapy that seems to do best is some form of cognitive behavior therapy mm -hmm. um, but for post-traumatic stress uh, there's certain types of cognitive behavior therapy but also eye movement desensitization reprocessing therapy mm -hmm. and then for people who have problems um, with difficulties of emotional regulation and some self-harm as well dialectical behavior therapy dbt is recommended as are a couple of other therapies uh, one called mentalization and another called schema focused cognitive therapy. So we do have quite a number of therapies mm -hmm. that work and which one you should choose should certainly be based on the evidence and would depend a bit on what the clinical condition is. Right, right. Yeah, thank you for that. And if we're just talking about the three that you've mentioned, cognitive behavioral therapy, EMDR and DBT, how robust is the evidence um, for each of the clinical, you know, as you mentioned, CBT has been approved for a wide range of um, mental disorders. Um, EMDR, you know, for, for things like PTSD, and then DBT for things like emotional dysregulation, borderline personality disorder. But how robust, I know, talk a little bit about the robustness of efficacy or effectiveness. Yeah. Um, for, yeah. for each so, of them. I mean, the first the first thing to say is that, you know, in, in psychotherapy, one positive clinical trial is probably not enough to give you a lot of confidence. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, it, it obviously is going to be on a selective group of people in a particular context. So you do want multiple positive clinical trials. 
Um, and for those three therapies that you've mentioned, all of them are supported by multiple trials. Uh -huh. uh, and they, there, there are sort of good, sound mathematical ways of combining the data from the multiple trials to get a good overall estimate of how effective they are. So I think those three are well supported. But um, as you've pointed out, the, the range of um, conditions that they're recommended for does vary. So EMDR is really just recommended for uh, treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, DBT, again, has a relatively restricted recommendation more to do with you know, uh, borderline issues, issues more uh, emotion dysregulation. Mm -hmm. uh, CBT has a broader recommendation, certainly across all the uh, anxiety disorders, the eating disorders, uh, and depression. So what, maybe talk a little, so each of them, CBT, what is it, what does it do, and why is it so effective for the most uh, prevalent disorders like depression, anxiety? Well, the general um, idea in CBT is that um, the, the things that uh, make us particularly uh, distressed are to do with the way we think about the events that happen to us uh -huh. and the way that thinking changes the way we behave. Uh -huh. um, and so that's why it's called CBT because it's to do with your thinking or your cognitions and also changes in behavior. And the two of them get interlocked. And so the therapy often involves trying to change both. So if you take one of the conditions I've worked on, panic disorder, Mm -hmm. In these very frightening sudden attacks of anxiety, uh, people often think they're dying, although mm -hmm. they're not actually dying. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason, the, the, the problem there is that they misinterpret fairly benign symptoms. So they notice a racing heart, feeling short of breath, and they think they're having a heart attack, mm -hmm. even if they may have had those many times in the past and been right. fine. Um, but of course, if you think you're dying, you, 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 you're terrified. And so it's really understandable. People get very anxious very quickly. Um, but then the question is, but how come people might have several hundred of those attacks and nothing bad happens and they keep on thinking that way? Uh -huh. And that's where the behavior comes in. So often people, when they have these symptoms of tightness in their chest, racing heart, feeling short of breath, and they think they're dying, they would do something to try and take the strain off their heart. They might sort of um, lie, put, it, put themselves in a chair, sort of slow down their breathing, try and relax. And if the symptoms go away afterwards, they'll think it's only because I did that thing to take right. the strain off my heart. Right. If I hadn't done that, maybe I would have died. And so the fact that nothing bad happens doesn't change your thinking. Mm -hmm. And so in order to help people change their thinking, not only do you have to sort of discuss with them the fact that there doesn't actually seem to be anything seriously physically wrong with their heart, but you also have to look at these protective behaviors they're engaging in and encourage them to drop them to learn that nothing bad's going to happen. So that's yeah. the sort of essence of cognitive behavior therapy. The way it plays out varies from different condition to condition, but in all cases, it's a matter of looking at what are the sort of excessively negative thought patterns and how are 
changes in behavior, including what you pay attention to, mm -hmm. sort of keeping them going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had a personal, it was an epiphany really about um, and confronting versus avoiding and avoidance being a maladaptive behavior when you had anxiety. Um, yes. And then that would continue to perpetuate. And then, um, you know, it's because speaking to exposure therapy, and I think that's integrated into CBT to some degree. But maybe talk about a, a little bit, if you don't mind, about how important it is to be voluntarily exposed to the thing that you fear or avoid um, as a part of the therapeutic process. Yeah, so if the problem is anxiety, then most successful therapies involve uh, getting you um, to confront the thing you're afraid of. Mm -hmm. But in order for them really to work, they need to build your confidence and allow you to learn something new right. while you're doing it. Mm -hmm. So um, just encouraging people to go into difficult situations isn't necessarily a really reliable thing to do. The principle's good. But um, if you keep on doing these safety strategies, then you won't necessarily learn something new. So let's take, for example, social anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that people fear who've got social anxiety is that if they're talking to other people, other people will think they're stupid or boring. Right, yeah. And um, so they may avoid talking to other people quite a lot, but say you just have to, so you've got to talk to work colleagues and things, mm -hmm. then a lot of people with social anxiety, what they'll do is they'll, they'll plan in advance what they're going to say. Mm -hmm. they, they, they might even, you know, look at the news online in the morning and think, you know, what, what's going on in the world? What are the sort of things I can throw in showing I'm, you know, well informed when I'm talking to my colleagues? Right, right. And so when they're having, you know, lunch break with their colleagues, they, you know, they probably would prefer to have lunch on their own, but they think, you know, I've got to really try and mix. So they join their colleagues. Um, they feel really anxious while they're doing it, but they, you know, they, they, they throw in the things they've noticed online and to try and sound interesting. And the conversation sort of goes okay. Uh, what, what's going to be the consequence of that? Well, the first thing you can guarantee is that they didn't enjoy their lunch. <laughs> they felt really anxious when they were doing that because they felt, you know, they've got to cover up. They've got to seem as though they're, they're, they're clever, sort of impress their colleagues. And, you know, that right. you know, makes you feel very stressed. The other thing I will guarantee is that the next day, they'll feel just as stressed right. because they'll think, I just got away with it. But, you know, if, I, if I'm just myself, I don't do all this preparation in advance, people will think I'm boring. Mm -hmm. So it's a good principle to confront the thing you're afraid of, to, to go and have lunch with the colleagues when you really wouldn't want to. But it's only going to really help if when you do that, you also change your behavior in the situation so you learn something new. Mm. In this case, the thing to do would be the person not to, you know, go online and check clever topics in advance, just to go to the lunch and say the first thing that comes into their mind and just mm -hmm. be themselves. Mm -hmm. And of course, the chances are they'll be accepted by other people. Mm. And then, of course, they'll feel much more confident because they'll get to learn that actually the world will accept you as you are. You don't need to put on a show. Right, right, yeah. And what, what that was really well said. With respect to EMDR, I think it's 
probably uh, maybe the most un misunder uh, misunderstood or, or not understood treatment. Maybe talk a little bit about why that works for post-traumatic stress disorder and how it, how, what the mechanism is um, when you're doing psychotherapy using the MDR. What is going on? Yeah. Well, I don't think we know exactly uh, why it works, but it, it does have some good empirical support for it. But like a lot of the other treatments for traumas, it involves bringing to mind the traumatic event, mm -hmm. um, but at the same time doing uh, something that's somewhat incompatible with it, uh, or something more neutral. You know, moving your eyes, tapping in a particularly rhythmic way while holding the thing in mind. And that seems to sort of prevent you getting completely sucked into it uh, and often allows you sort of to, the, 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 the story of, of the trauma sort of elaborates and moves on as you're holding it in mind. And I think a lot of dealing with, with, with trauma is essentially allowing it to sort of get linked up to your present because trauma memories have this unusual quality that they're sort of stuck in a sort of separate box, if you like, and mm -hmm. once you're in it, you feel as though the whole thing's happening again. And we need to sort of connect it to the rest of life. And EMDR is probably a good way of doing that in the same way that something called trauma-focused cognitive behavior therapy does it. And, and do you and think the outcome data seems to be similar for the two. Mm. Do you think that um, trauma childhood trauma generally speaking um is the root of much of the mental illness that we see in society today and if so should we be spending more time on trauma-based therapies um, well quite a lot of um uh, people look at can report traumatic events in their past. Um, that's true for people with mental health problems, but it's also true for a lot of people without mental health problems. Right. So there isn't a sort of one-to-one -one relationship. Mm -hmm. But early experience um, certainly uh, shapes the way we think um, and has quite an influence on us. But it's not just you know very early experiences. Um, many people also develop uh, traumatic events, sorry, emotional problems, uh, linked to later traumas in their life right. as well. Mm -hmm. um, so it sort of becomes an empirical question, you know, to what extent should therapy focus on the present and uh, helping you to see what aspects of your behavior are keeping the problem going now and how mm -hmm. we can, can we change that to mm -hmm. free you from these emotional problems and to what extent we need to go into the past. Um, and, you know, one of the... Uh, successes of cognitive behavior therapy has been that it seems to do very well with a present focus with most cognitive right. behavioral mm -hmm. treatments except for the one in ptsd which is obviously to do with processing traumas in the past tends to have a present focus but it's not exclusively that way so for example in treating social anxiety um, a lot of the treatment is to do with testing out your beliefs about what other people think of you and how they'll respond to you if you're just yourself in the here and now. Um, mm -hmm. And one of the most potent techniques is uh, helping people see that the images they have of, of how they think they look to other people are very distorted, excessively negative. Mm -hmm. And the best way of looking at that is actually video feedback, where mm -hmm. you, you record people on video while they're having conversations with other people.
get them to predict how they think they came across and then show them how they really came across. And that's very powerful and it mm -hmm. helps a lot yeah. of people. So the majority of the, that, that treatment, treatment of that condition is present focused, even though we know that a lot of the images people have of these distorted images of how they think they look are based on early traumatic experiences, often mm. you know, times when they were very embarrassed as a child. Right. Um, but it is also the case that for some people, the present focus techniques don't get you all the way you want to go for. And in those people, we find adding in a past focus is, is an extra helpful ingredient. And so just because there is early trauma, it doesn't mean to say that's the best treatment route. I see. Yes. Yeah. But it is important to bear that in mind. And it may well be that going into the past is helpful as well as dealing with the present. Right. And if, if you don't mind, just and then we can we can pivot to some more macro issues. Uh, yeah. Dialectical behavioral therapy. Just explain to, to, to the listeners what that is and how that came came to be through the work of uh, Marshall Linehan. Marshall Linehan, yeah. I'm not really an expert on okay. dialectical behavior therapy, so Marshall would be better person to tell you and, and do, I hope, get her in on your podcast. Um, but, uh, I mean, Marsha has very good, it, it's really a quite comprehensive treatment, uh, has lots of good ideas in it. Um, but it has ways of teaching people how to tolerate really quite high emotion uh, and um, also to sort of try and avoid getting into sort of patterns of behavior, mm -hmm. which are sort of historical and, and are problematic. And um, with respect and to it the... particularly started off by focusing on, on people who were, you know, when they were very distressed, tended to self-harm. Right. And it had a... a a number of ways of really helping people to 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 deal with those moments and to hold back from her mm -hmm. self harm. Mm -hmm. When you think about back to let's just take cognitive behavioral therapy and changing thoughts and behaviors, how much effort has been spent on trying to understand the that from a from a neuroscience perspective? Um, and do you think that's a necessary research question that we should endeavor to invest money in and, and, and understand? Or do you think it's already well understood based on the work that's been done without brain imaging or whatever it may be? Uh, how do you think about that? Um. Well, you know, obviously one of the great advances in the last uh, 20 years or so has been the availability of sort of non-invasive brain imaging. And, you know, it's, it's really brought psychology forward in many areas. Um, in terms of psychological therapies, I don't think it's had a very big impact yet, but that doesn't mean to say it won't in the future. Um, the, uh, I mean, there are two ways it has been used. Um, the first is to look at... Um, you know, changes in brain activation patterns before and after therapy. And in general, you know, the findings there have not been very surprising, but are encouraging. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, if you go through cognitive behavior therapy or other therapies, say for anxiety disorders, 
and then we look at the brain's activation when you're presented with the sort of stimuli that which would normally make you anxious you see very different activation patterns right. post yeah. than mm -hmm. pre-treatment so certainly you know anyone who had any doubts about do psychological therapies have profound effects on the body I would probably stop having those doubts when you look at the imaging mm -hmm. studies because mm -hmm. you know the way the brain reacts really changes with psychological therapies um, and you know that's been a nice observation. Um, there are also some studies that have looked at, you know, are there people with certain patterns of brain activation who are more or less um, amenable to psychological therapies? Mm -hmm. and, and there are a number of studies that have suggested that um, you can, on average, you know, predict um, people being more or less likely to respond to a psychological therapy depending on certain brain activation patterns. But the predictive power is not phenomenally strong. Uh, and so you, you wouldn't at this point say, you know, before you have cognitive behavior therapy or psychodynamic psychotherapy, we should give you a brain scan to check whether you're right. yeah. responsive or not. Yeah. The, 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 you know, it's not that precise. It, you know, the brain scan may say you're not a very promising case. You don't have the therapy and do quite well. So right. uh, when, you know, it's, it's interesting, but it's not at that sort of individual precision level. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, there are some other variables that we um, probably have much better evidence base for. So, for example, uh, we do know, really, whatever psychological therapy you have, that the more credible you think it is early on in therapy, the more likely you are to respond. Mm -hmm. um, so, and that's quite important because... Um, in some areas, you know, like depression, where we've got several therapies, then patient choice is important. Mm -hmm. um, if someone th thinks that, you know, interpersonal psychotherapy seems more credible to them right. than, say, yeah. CBT, the chances are they're more likely to respond to interpersonal mm -hmm. psychotherapy. So, you know, healthcare systems should try and make available to the public a range of evidence-based therapies when, you know, on average they've got similar effects. Right. Yeah. No. That's a, yeah. That's a really good point. I've had a number of people say to me, um, "I really want to get EMDR therapy." Yes. You know, and, and therefore, yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's an interesting interesting point. And so for you, so I, 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 I think we should we should support patient choice among therapies that have an evidence base. I mean, if you said, you know, I really want to get lick, carpet licking therapy, you probably wouldn't <laughs> want to. To offer yeah. that broadly, yeah. however strongly people would like it. Yeah, that's the one I've been trying to get into for twelve months. It's actually got a surprisingly long wait list. <laughs> um, well, how do you think about so the, the current mental health care system? Um, you know, the majority of uh, patients would go see their primary care physician, and then the primary care physician, and then I'll speak from a Canadian perspective. Um, does not have a very robust level of training in mental health, and therefore, you know, the the, predi the predisposition would be to want to provide some sort of um, antidepressant or or benzodiazepine to alleviate suffering because you know uh, they're empathetic to the situation. How do you think about how we can encourage? Uh, psychotherapy more at the primary care level than medication 
because it's much, much more difficult for an individual to invest in psychotherapy than it is to invest in a pill. Yeah. So, um, I mean, obviously, uh, for many of the mental health conditions that we're talking about, certainly for depression and anxiety, there is evidence that um, medication can be effective for mm -hmm. some people. They, certainly, you know, trials show that many of the medications that are available in Canada and, and the UK are better than a placebo pill. Mm -hmm. um, and for some people, that's a strong preference. Mm -hmm. And in general, I think in both the UK and Canada, people for, in that category, you know, they really want medication, get it. The big yes. problem is the fact that when you do surveys, uh, you know, throughout the rest Western world, there are over 30 of these surveys now in many different countries. There's a public preference in the ratio of about three to one in favor of psychological therapies. Mm. But in none of our countries is the, gov is the public getting what it wants. Mm -hmm. Nowhere uh, are you more likely to get psychological therapy, at least evidence-based psychological therapy, than you are to get medication. Mm -hmm. So that's the big problem. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's a sort of crazy situation because we, we know that um, these therapies, uh, if you take it on a society-wide basis, actually cost less to deliver than the money they save in right, healthcare right. systems. And you know, in 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 the sort of uh, wealth of the nation, so you know, it's economic madness as well as um, you know, ethically uh, unreasonable to be holding to be withholding these treatments. But that's the sort of position that we have in most of our countries. Yeah, um, and is there not evidence as well for um, psychotherapy being more beneficial over the long term? Uh, yes. for patients so, than SSRIs yeah. or antidepressants. So in England, we have uh, this group, as I mentioned, NICE, the, uh, that makes clinical recommendations. And if you look at their recommendations in depression and anxiety disorders, although they recommend medication, they give their first-line top recommendation to psychological therapies. And the reason for that is not necessarily because the initial response to psychological therapies is a lot stronger, but because it holds up better. Mm -hmm. So um, in depression, if you're treated with antidepressants and recover, and then you know, nine months, a year down the line, you withdraw the medication, you do have quite a high risk of having another episode of depression within the next one to two years. Mm. That risk is very substantially reduced, not eliminated, but very substantially reduced if your treatment was cognitive behavior instead. instead, mm. um, And with uh, anxiety disorders, this difference is also dramatic. So for example, in one of our trials of panic disorder against medication, so cognitive therapy versus medication, we found that uh, the people who are treated with cognitive therapy had only a 5% relapse rate over the next year but those who are treated with the antidepressant had a 40% relapse rate over mm. the next mm -hmm. year. Wow, we that. found exactly the same thing with social anxiety with similarly big effects. Mm -hmm. And just, do you, do you believe strongly that, based on the research, that medication plus psychotherapy is better than just medication or just psychotherapy? Or do you think the, the research is weak in that area? 
Well, the, the answer uh, from the existing research studies um, differs depending on the clinical condition. Mm. But in most areas, there aren't that many trials. So that's the other right, thing. Right, right, so, yeah. So but that's, kind of the, that's kind of the prevailing wisdom, just as a, not in the research world, but in the public's understanding or, and so maybe, uh, yeah, I worry yeah. about that. So if you bit. take depression, um, then I think we would say that um, if you're looking at the more severe case, I mean, if it's mild to moderate uh, depression, there isn't actually much evidence that antidepressants are better than placebo. Mm -hmm. It seems that it's only in the more severe depressions that they really do better than placebo. Um, but if you're in that realm, then there is some evidence that in the short term, uh, you do slightly better if you have combined treatment than if you have medication alone. The trials often show there isn't much of a difference between psychological treatment alone and combined treatment, but there certainly is between combined treatment and medication alone. Um, and there doesn't seem to be a big price you pay for having the combined treatment in long term right. follow-up. Right, I see. However, if we take panic disorder, the answer is different. In panic disorder, there's a very well conducted um, US trial, large trial, which um, showed that um, if you take people who um, got better on the combination of CBT and medication, um, they are more likely to relapse than people who got better on CBT alone. Hmm. Quite a big difference. And furthermore, um, this study found that if you had CBT plus a placebo pill, mm -hmm. you had a lower relapse rate than if you had CBT plus the antidepressant. Uh, interesting. interesting. So what we would say for panic disorder is, you know, don't think let's have the best of both worlds, let's have both treatments initially together. Uh -huh. We would say probably start with the psychological treatment. And if you respond well to that, then that's it. That's fine. And you're likely to stay well. If, however, it, you, know, you don't get an adequate response to that, then it's worth considering adding, adding in medication at that point. But don't automatically just do both of them at the start, because then right. you run the risk of having a slightly higher relapse rate. Hmm. So let's talk a little bit about... Um Improving access to psychological therapies, the program that um, you had initiated, and along with Richard Layard, and because this this harkens back to I think advocacy and um, how the pharmaceutical industry has been extremely effective at advocacy. And I, I'm not this is not an anti-medication um, uh, podcast at all. However. I am interested in, in evidence and then applying the best evidence to public policy. When did you first start thinking about uh, marrying uh, economics with economic evidence and psychological evidence together? And how did your program start? Well, actually, you know, to be honest, it was an accident. <laughs> so uh, I'd been sort of lobbying for a while to try and get the uh, UK government to increase access to psychological therapies. Uh -huh. And I hadn't been very successful. And when uh, it was you, was it you as an individual professor or you as part of a 
association or who are, who are you representing? Me, me as an individual like, professor, okay. sort of, you know, not lobbying people in government. Yeah. Um, and it hadn't been very successful. People said, well, you know, these psychological therapists do seem to do very well in clinical trials, but, you know, it costs a lot of money to implement them and nothing's going uh -huh. to happen. Um, and it's really just a chance meeting. Uh, Richard Layard, who's a very distinguished economist, also uh -huh. a member of the House of Lords, so, you know, partly in our parliament. Um, and I, we both got an award one, one day in a sort of, so called a British Academy. Um, uh -huh. And so we were just queuing for a cup of tea, a long queue uh, with some uh, other awardees. And we started chatting to each other and talking about what we're, we each do. And he had some interest in psychotherapy, although he's a labor economist. He spent his life working on labor economics. Uh -huh. um, because his father had been a psychotherapist. Mm -hmm. um, and so he said, you know, well, what's the psychotherapies like now? You know, my, my father used to be uh, operating in the 1950s. Has, have they changed very much? Are they any more effective? And I said, yeah, they have changed. And yes, they are more effective. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, you know, do the public get them? I haven't heard a lot about these more modern therapies. And I said, well, unfortunately, they don't get them very much. And um, he said, well, why is that? And I said, well, it's a, it's a puzzle. We have been trying to lobby for it. And he said, well, you have been using an economic argument, haven't you? Because presumably if people get better from their anxiety and depression, they're much more productive in the workplace. Uh, they're probably less likely to be unemployed. This mm -hmm. must you know, be a big saving to, to, to society, isn't it? Right. And I said, well, that's a good idea. No, we haven't been using that argument. And to be honest, I'm not sure I, I would be well qualified to do that, not being an right. economist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he said, well, you know, why don't we get together? And so we got together and formed a partnership. And together we sort of met, lobbied on a combined clinical and economic argument yeah. for starting, you know, a mass rollout of, on the National Health Service of Psychological Therapies. And that combined argument was listened to. And that's what helped us create the IAP program. And how, what, what year was it when you met him? Was it like 2010, 2000? Uh, it was in 2004. 2004. So how, I guess I was just, how long and hard um, did you lobby? And then you did have a mass rollout between 2004 and 2000, um, the start of the program. Were there pilot trials or did you just, yeah, for the yep. yeah yeah I see okay so um, so so what happened is we got together uh, and you know he said he'd like to learn a bit more about modern therapies and I'm an Oxford academic so he said well could you give me some tutorials so <laughs> I gave him a short set of tutorials on the state of the art in psychotherapy and then uh, together we wrote a, a a short document just a couple of slides laying out the arguments for why. Um, it would be, you know, economically beneficial as well as clinically beneficial to make therapies more widely available, the evidence-based ones. And um, he managed to bring it to the attention of the Prime Minister at the time, Tony Blair. Um, mm -hmm. And Tony was interested. He thought this is an idea that needs to be tested. So he arranged for us to um, give a presentation in what's called the Cabinet's Office, which is a you know, senior section of government right. where we could present to 
ministers from education, from health, mm -hmm. um, from work and pensions and other um, ministries and outline our argument. I think we were both given 15 minutes mm -hmm. and then we were sort of grilled for an hour. Uh, the upshot of that meeting was that the uh, Labour Party that was in government at the time made a commitment uh, that if they got elected in the next election, they would start exploring making these therapies more widely available. Oh, wow. So we presented in January 2005. The general election was in May, and the Labour Party did win. Uh, oh, and so they they honoured their uh, okay. commitment. They said, "Well, you know, you gave a strong argument, but we'd like to pilot it to check whether your arguments right. really got." some real world relevance, uh -huh. it was all research studies. So we'll give you some money to um, put, uh, create two pilots in different areas of the country. Let's see if you can get the outcomes you promised. Um, so those pilots ran from 2005 to 2007. Um, and they were very successful. Uh -huh. uh, we we'd sort of said, if these therapies are delivered well, about 50% of people should fully recover and you know, around about two thirds or a bit more should show really worthwhile improvements. And that was what was achieved. And so in 2007, the government said, well, okay, we'll commit to a national rollout. Wow. And that's how you know, the, the, the IAP system started, not in every area of the country immediately because we didn't have enough therapists, but yeah. um, it, it got phased up um, over about three years, and by the end of the three years, we'd covered every area of the country. Um, a really key bit of the whole initiative was a commitment to collect outcome data on every single patient who was treated. Right. This was a, a revolution at the time. Um, we'd had an audit of psychotherapy in the country, and we were only collecting outcome data on less than 40% of people. Wow. But the government yeah. said, you know, if, you, if we're going to give you this money, we really need to know what the outcomes are. Uh -huh. So we, we put in place a really simple system where every time someone's seen, they fill in a short measure of anxiety and depression. Uh -huh. So even if they drop out of therapy early, we still get the data. Uh -huh. uh, that worked really well. We, we do get data on everyone. And, um, we were able to show that you know you're getting the benefits you anticipate, and so that really underpinned us getting permission and money to do the national rollout. Um, yeah, it, and we started small, about two hundred thousand people in the first year, but we're now up to one point two million a year. Wow! And yeah, you did a pre and post assessment every single session for every single patient, correct? Well, it's, it, it's, it's actually a measure you fill in just before each session. But, uh, of course, it means that, say, you, you know, you've had five sessions, we've got five measures, uh, and we right. can look yeah. at the, pre, the beginning and end of therapy and see how much you've changed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, so you're now, right now you have 1.2 million people as part of the IAP program? Yeah. And what's what what is your role role now as a if any i'm sure there is as a advocate for publicly funded psychotherapy around the 
the world do people people I imagine come to you from places like Canada and ask you how did you do this and maybe just talk through how you're scaling this or helping other countries build on the work that you've done. So of course, you know, many other countries are in exactly the same position that England was in in 2005. The the public isn't benefiting from all these good psychological therapies because they're not widely available. And so, you know, uh, we've tried to help other countries advance their systems as well. I mean, no one does it exactly the same as England, because every healthcare system is different. You shouldn't just yeah, follow the brick. Copy and paste. <laughs> dreadful thing to do in life. But, um, the, uh, but I think some of the broad principles have been helpful. So um, I think you know, the idea that there is a sound economic argument behind mm-hmm. making evidence-based treatments available is one which has been well-received in many countries. And I know in Ontario, you know, it, it's something that is behind the structured psychotherapy program that you have. Uh Um, I think the other thing that has appealed to many other countries is the fact that you can collect outcome data on everyone and you you can publish that and learn from it. Uh Um, I I think, you know, prior to IAT, when people were thinking of commissioning mental health services, they only thought in terms of what we call input variables. How many people get seen? Right. What do they get? They didn't. They couldn't think in terms of. But do they get better? Right. <laughs> because no one was collecting data. No one's reporting it. But I have to show that you can get data from everyone. You can look at whether people get better, and you can learn from it. Um, and so, you know, we found that um, at the start of the national rollout, we weren't getting our fifty percent recovery. Uh, we were somewhat below it. But we also found that some services were well above and some were below, and we studied what the differences were, and we learned a lot from that about how to do it well. And so we managed to sort of transform the poor performing services so that they performed very well like the others, and the overall national recovery went, you know, went way up. And I think other countries have observed that and thought, you know, this is a good system. Maybe we should also go for such sort of transparency of data and learn from it. And I know in, in Canada, uh, Paul Kurdiak, who's you know, mm-hmm. running the data center that's behind the structured psychotherapy program in Ontario, is aiming to do exactly that. Uh, in Norway, they have about 60 IAP services now, and they've been doing exactly that as well. They've adopted the same session-by-session outcome monitoring. Mm-hmm. They have a team that analyzes the data and you know, looks for the clues about how to improve performance and their performance is doing well as well so i see this as taking mental health out of the dark ages i think uh-huh. you know for far too long um we've not really known whether people get better or not with our treatments we we, we do these treatments um but when we're not we're not really recording in routine services uh who gets better and who doesn't and we're not publishing it uh-huh. but i am you know, has shown that you can do both of those things. And it's wonderful because we learn from it and we can make the treatments, the services much more effective as a consequence. In a sense, what yeah. we're doing in mental health is no different from what people have been doing in some areas of physical health for a long time. Um, uh-huh. In England, we, at the end of the 90s, we had a, a terrible scandal where 
we discovered that uh, if you had a, a young baby that had a heart problem and needed cardiac surgery, if that baby was operated in one hospital, the chances of them coming out alive were minute. If they were operated on in another hospital, same operation for the same problem, they were very, very likely to come out alive wow. and thrive. Wow. And so, you know, this once people were starting to collect the data and report it, and the key is to start reporting early, uh -huh. then, you know, the cardiologists were stunned. Uh -huh. They thought, there must be something going on here. Uh -huh. uh, up until that point, they felt, well, if the baby died, it was just, you know, the heart problem was particularly difficult. Right. Whereas now they thought, no, 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 there must be differences in the way we're all doing these operations, right. which really affect the outcome. And the cardiologists were very good. They got together. They had lots of meetings. They discussed the differences. And now we get very consistent outcomes in pediatric cardiac surgery and very good ones. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's really the same principle that's now being applied in mental health with IAMS. Talk a little bit about the importance of training the psychotherapists in the IAM program. Because, you know, it's kind of it's analogous to what you just said. That, well, maybe not the training aspect, but just to have um, equity in terms of, or consistency in terms of how you're delivering it. So what did you do to ensure uh, qualified psychotherapists were uh, available at that kind of scale? Yeah, so you're right, this is a really critical point. Um, you know, psychological therapies are complex interventions. Um, that you know, giving a pill is a much more simple type of procedure. And uh, you know, you're always going to have the same amount of the active chemical in every one, every single pill. Um, but with psychological therapies, unless you've got a therapist who's well-trained and is doing the treatment the way it's meant to be done, then essentially you're probably operating like a placebo. You've just got someone who's kind and empathic, but they've not got the extra magical ingredients of that therapy. Uh, and so you can only expect to get the good results that you get in the research if you train people well. So that was really at the heart of the IAP program because you know the biggest bit of scaling up the therapies is to have more therapists to deliver them. Yeah. And so we decided that what we will do is we will look closely at um, exactly what is done in the different therapies when they're in those sort of best clinical trials. Uh, and then we will to create a national training curriculum where everyone is trained in the exact way to do that treatment based on the research evidence. Mm. And then they only qualify if they demonstrate that they've got all the relevant competencies uh, from video recordings of their therapy sessions. Mm -hmm. So it's a very sort of practical, hands-on um, sort of skills acquisition program, only passing out when you've shown that you have the relevant skills. And we have a national framework where, which specifies what those skills are based on the evidence base. Oh. And I think I would not have been so successful if we hadn't taken that approach of having a a national training curriculum. Many universities deliver it, but they all deliver to the same standard. And you only get passed if you really demonstrate practically that you have the relevant skills. Is that unique to uh, 
England in terms of... I think it probably is at this stage. Uh, The idea that you have a a, a national training curriculum which is closely aligned to the research studies and that, you know, all the universities follow it. Um, Obviously, you know, we have different training curricula in different uh, clinical psychology programs and um, mental health nursing programs uh, in the US and in Canada. But I don't think they all follow a national uh, evidence-based, the same curriculum. Yeah. yeah. So in terms of um, the future of psychotherapy and mental health treatments over the next 25 years, where where do you see further progress um, in in your book Thrive? You know, you did mention. I think about a lot of cultural issues or societal issues that affect mental illness, which is a very complex um, question to answer, especially because it doesn't pertain specifically to psychotherapy. But are you are you optimistic about the future of of mental health care, and where are some promising areas of further development? Yeah, I mean, I'm tremendously optimistic about the future of mental health care. Um, I mean, for lots of reasons. Um, I mean, the first one is that, you know, once you start getting programs like IAPT or the Structured Psychotherapy Program in Ontario, uh, and you're getting very large numbers of people treated, and you're getting standard standardized measures on all of them, then, you know, you can start focusing really systematically on that small subgroup of people who don't benefit from the existing treatments mm-hmm. and with these large samples you have enough of those people to really study what's going on and what are the things that the existing therapies miss or what are the sort of interlocks of thoughts and behaviors and memories that we're not sort of opening up with our existing right. techniques and that means of course we can bring them into the lab we can try out different variants of therapy that might be helpful for these people and then implement them in real world studies with large numbers of people. So I think, you know, big programs like IATS really make it a vast sort of methodological advance in terms of the possibilities for psychotherapy research. You know, we've been bedeviled for decades with having these expensive studies with very small numbers of people where, you know, there's a limit to what you can learn. Um, So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is that, uh, that there are big developments in sort of digital uh, delivery of therapy. I was going to um, ask that, yeah. Quite a, quite a number of these therapies can be made available to people online. And um, for some people, you know, they really like that and they do very well. And it's more efficient. They don't have to travel to clinics and things like that. And they can do a lot of the work in their own time, late at night or whatever, and still have a therapist who links into them, but more sort of by video or uh, messaging, uh, you know, at another time of day. Um, and those therapies can obviously reach people in much more distant, remote places. Um, but they also um, they don't have an off day. <laughs> so once you get the content of an online program right, it delivers that same content all the time, and you can. You know, tweak it and refine it and make it better. Whereas if you're looking at, you know, the average psychotherapist, you know, we have good days and bad days uh, <laughs> for our delivery. So that's that's an advantage. 
also i think some of these online therapies once you've got really good content that it's easier to get them to travel to other countries so we have an online uh, version of cognitive therapy for social anxiety which is one of our treatments um, right. the face-to-face -face therapy is very effective but the online version seems to be as effective uh, in england but the really nice thing is that we've also done trials in japan and in china and it does just as well uh, because it's relatively easy to, to translate the content uh, and it there's not so much much extra training of the therapists as there would be if you were trying to train a whole cohort of psychologists in these different countries to do these complex uh -huh, treatments uh -huh. so i think you know dissemination of really good treatments more internationally is easier getting easier because of digital developments um, and of course the other thing that's becoming more of a focus of everyone's attention is prevention uh -huh. you know can we um get in early I and mean, one of the uh really regrettable things about most of our education systems is that uh, we don't really teach people much about emotions and managing emotions in school uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, and a lot of our children are of course subjected to an enormous amount of stress on social media uh, which is, you know, contributing to lots of difficulties at the moment. And we still haven't quite got our head around how we can adjust our sort of school curricula to help uh, people learn uh, skills with uh, managing with emotions and interpersonal communication in difficult situations. Um, but that's obviously an, an area where an enormous amount can be done in the future. And I'm very hopeful for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in your book, thrive I have, I have two daughters nine and six and you're talking about mm -hmm. prevention you know and i i had the quote but i've lost it now but i'm sure you remember you know one of the most important preventative measures that uh to prevent mental illness is is parenting you know and so yes so when, I, when i read that you know it's like oh, oh. Uh, thank you david for you know that intuitively, obviously, but um, when you read it in those terms, um, you think, okay, yeah, you got a lot of you got a lot of work to do as a parent to make sure you. And then the problem, the challenge is you can't overparent, but you can't underparent, right? And so there's that yeah. there's that middle ground that makes it so incredibly difficult to allow children to be exposed to uh, external threats in the environment, but not external threats that are so dangerous that they may harm them permanently so um, it's, yeah. I mean it's a, it's a difficult one isn't it mm -hmm. um, but, and it, it's made even more difficult because you know each child is different to themselves aren't they mm -hmm. they may mm -hmm. come from the same gene pool but the, the mix of genes they get is different and mm -hmm. um, a, a parenting strategy that works really well with one may not work quite so well with another so there's also the challenge of you know, learning as you go along and being flexible, isn't there? <laughs> yeah. Do you think about, um, there's obviously a, a movement around um, psychotherapy support, psychedelics and, and psychotherapy. Um, are you involved in that in any way, shape or form? Or do you have an opinion on it in terms of where that's going to fit? within the, the mental health care system as we move forward. With yeah, so I'm not involved in this at all. Um, 
there are some groups in Oxford that are uh, exploring it for treatment of for treatment resistant depression, um, and some of the early trials are showing promise. But I think it's too early days to be very confident at this stage. Um, but so I would like to to go back to the issue of, of children and prevention, because a lot of the um, you know the problems that we see in adults started in childhood. Right. Um, Certainly, you know, one of the ones we talk about social anxiety, you know, the average age of onset of social anxiety in people who have it as an adult is 13. And almost everyone has developed it before the end, end of adolescence. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, you might think it's a bit crazy that we don't focus more systematically our treatment efforts that early on. Mm -hmm. because. Mm -hmm. um, Otherwise, you know, you're going to blight a lot of your life. Um, and furthermore, you actually blight your school life. So we find that uh, children with social anxiety um, feel very self-conscious in the classroom. So, you know, they're worried that other children are looking at them. And that's in their mind a lot. So they actually can't focus so much on what the teacher says. Right. And so they end up getting much less good exam grades than you'd expect, given their intelligence. And so there's a really strong argument for getting, you know, good um, psychological therapies available in schools early on. And, you know, in doing that, you're likely to you know, not only make life much less stressful for our children in schools, but they'll actually perform better academically. And, you know, it'll help them transition into the job market. So we all win by doing that. Yeah. And I think the interesting thing is that, you know, um, our minds are very much more flexible in, in, in mm -hmm. adolescence and mm -hmm. childhood. And so this is really a very fertile ground, both for bad influences and, you know, social media and other things. Some aspects of it can really have a negative impact on children, but it can go the other way. If you get a really good influence, then it really has a, a big impact. And we've just finished a trial of our online treatments in adolescents, and we found that we do even better with them than we do with adults, and you know, really some stunning results. And they're concentrating much better in the classroom. They're doing much better wow. uh, academically. Is this, as well. is, this is this published yet, or is it still? No, we're we're just finishing it up. Oh, okay. So okay. I'll get to your, I mean, you'll, you'll see it in the in in publications next year. Okay. Yeah, because I think. So. Upon reflection, you know, I think I struggled with social anxiety to a degree, and I, and I find that it's a difficult thing to, because you can hide it as a child as yeah. well, right? And so to mask it, and because um, there's a there's a stigma, um, there very much was when I was thirteen. But you know, how do you? I guess the question is, how do you inter how do you find the right children to intervene with? Um, is, a, is a really, I would find hard question to answer. Yeah, well, well, it is because you're right. You you can hide it. It's often un under detected. In fact, you know, family doctors are really pretty bad at, at picking mm -hmm. up social anxiety. Um, there's an English community survey where you know you just knock on random household doors and do a a survey of the whole community and we find that doctors are pretty good at detecting depression if it's there 
but their chance of detecting social anxiety is very poor indeed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, they might see that the person is distressed, but then coded as depression, even though it might be a chronic right. mm -hmm. social anxiety. So that that is a problem. I mean, teachers often pick it up, you know, saying yeah. that so and so doesn't doesn't speak up in class and things like that. Um, and you know that that's a way forward. But it also, you know, people themselves often appreciate that it's a problem, even if they're sort of hiding it rather from other people. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we found that one of the really key things in any of these you know, mass public availability of psychotherapy is to allow self-referral. So mm -hmm. you don't have to rely on a family doctor picking it up. You can mm -hmm. refer yourself. Yeah, that's um, yeah, that's really important. So can I, can I, I know I already screwed up our schedule and uh, so I'm just going to, two more, two more questions for you. Um, one, and I think, you know, people intuitively know the answer to this question, but I'd like to hear you answer it. Uh, I think in your book, you said that rich countries suffer mental illness at the rate of, I think I just roughly looked five times that of poor countries. What do you attribute that to? And do you think that's going to get worse? The the national international differences. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I don't think it has to get worse. No, um, mm -hmm. but it obviously depends quite a lot on government policies, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. um, and and certainly, you know, this is something that my colleague Richard Layard is more strongly involved with than I am. But Richard is really arguing very strongly that. The goal of governments should be to enhance the well-being of the population. Right, it should yes. be the aim of politics, mm -hmm. rather than just to enhance, you know, the gross domestic product of a country in terms of economics. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, there's more and more of a movement in that direction in, yes. in many countries. Um, and of course, not only is it very beneficial to the population, but it's also very beneficial to politicians, because there's quite a lot of research that shows that one of the main determinants of our voting patterns is the event to which we feel in the current administration our well-being is good or not, and uh -huh. also the extent to which we think a new administration will enhance that. So for politicians, it's enlightened self-interest to shift a focus much more to the well-being of the nation rather than just you know, gross economic right. activity. And success, which, after all, you know, was only meant to be there as a route to well-being. Right. Yes. And then yes. somehow we we sort of lost the great picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's it's important to have a job, to have well-being, but I think we've over-inflated the importance of the economy at, at the detriment of overall well-being, or, or or thinking that. A job is the be-all end-all for someone's well-being, and therefore, and obviously, once you start, you know, measuring well-being, and, and it can be measured in a systematic way. You know, there's some pretty stunning findings. Certainly in Europe, you know, the Scandinavian countries, particularly in mm -hmm. Norway, really do an awful lot better than Britain does, and than many other uh, countries as well. And it does make us look really closely at at how they run society and you know 
that societies are ones which on average, you know, the state looks out for the full range of people much more. Mm -hmm. And they are, you know, more systematically caring, I think. And so, okay, last, last question for you. Um, do, what's the future hold for you personally? And are, are there any um, big tasks um, that you have your eyes set on before you um, end your career? And I'm, not, I'm making the assumption that at some point you'll stop working. Some people never do. So maybe, but is there anything that you, you you're just, I need to do this before I can say it's the capstone of what has been an incredible career for you. Um, well, uh, I mean, I think there are two things I'm really excited about at the moment. Um, one is, you know, further developing these uh, internet therapies because they mm -hmm. just have this massive reach uh, and adapting them to use with, with, with children as well as adults. Uh, and the other thing is, you know, pushing the IAP programs forward in terms of, you know, the outcomes that we can achieve. So um, when we started on the national program, about 40% of people were fully recovering. Um, mm -hmm. and, you know, the pilots, we got a bit over 50, but when we went national, it dropped to about 40. Mm -hmm. We're now, you know, well above that 50% target, but we have some services that every month, um, more like 60% of people fully recover and you know, more like 75, 80% of people improve. I think we can get the whole nation there. Uh, and so we're working on that at the moment, you know, still analyzing the data, still looking at, you know, those services that do super well, what's the sort of stardust in them and you know, making that available to everyone. Um, and you know, that's just such a worthwhile goal because um, these psychological therapies have very enduring effects. Uh, you know, if you, if you take someone, you know, the most common, or if you take someone with PTSD or social anxiety, which are two of the areas that we work in, you know, with, with PTSD, you know, um, for some people, they recover well on their own in the first few years, but after the trial, but thereafter, it gets pretty stuck. You know, we had an awful lot of people who developed PTSD in the Second World War, who still had it when they died. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you take social anxiety, then, uh, you know, two-thirds of people will have it all of their lives if it's untreated. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have these powerful treatments, though, which can um, help you recover from either of those conditions in a relatively short period of time. If you get in early uh, and make them available, so you get in, you know, in someone's twenties or thirties, then you know, average life expectancy is over eighty. Mm -hmm. So you're giving someone a different life for the next fifty years. Mm -hmm. uh, they will do different things with their life. They'll do wonderful things that they couldn't do when they were held back by their mental health, and they contribute to to all of us and all of society in wonderful ways, which they always had the potential to do, but their mental health problems just held them back. So. You know, it's just a wonderful thing if we can, you know, keep on working and making these things that bit more effective because it's a real snowball effect and it has just massive effects on society. Yeah, no, well, well said. And I think 
generationally there's a there's an awakening too where you know even my parents generation um coping mechanisms were you know to dampen down the yes. the root cause with alcohol or drugs or whatever it may be. yes as opposed to trying to better understand your shortcomings um and the behaviors that produce negative consequences and so i'm positive from that perspective that you know the stigma um is, is still there but more and more people of my age can openly talk about their shortcomings psychologically and, and seek treatment and and then become a better person as a result of that and i, I always encourage people that um it, it, it's like you're trying to optimize your potential as a human being is really what psychotherapy should be seen as as doing and um yeah so so i commend you for for all the work you've done in this area and thank you so much for taking the time to join i mean on the stigma thing uh i think you know in a sense i tend to think it's a bit like you know the way we used to view cancer so when um people didn't think there were many effective treatments for cancer uh -huh. then you know, people were very reluctant to talk about it if they had it themselves they would talk about the big c it would be in euphemisms uh -huh. and often they wouldn't talk about it at all but people are much much more open in talking about cancer now of course and that's largely because in many cases we know that if we detect it early we have treatments now that really work for a lot of people not everyone but a lot of people well i think we're sort of going through that process now with mental health people partly because of IAPT and other initiatives are beginning to understand that crippling their mental health problems can be there are also ones that you can overcome there are also ones that we have effective treatments for and that makes people much more willing to talk about it much more interested in you know detecting it early on rather than just drinking a lot more and trying to push it out of your mind and so I think we're on the same positive journey that a lot of the cancer field went through 20 years ago. Well, thank you, Dr. Clark. And um, I really enjoyed chatting with you and uh, hope you enjoy your summer. Great. And it's lovely to talk to you, Mark, and you're doing great work with your podcast. So all uh -huh. the very best. Thanks kindly. Cheers.